invite you to turn with me to the book of Esther. We'll be walking through chapters 3 and 4 together this morning. Pastor Dave began the series last week, chapters 1 and 2, so we return this week to our story of Esther. Our protagonists of Mordecai and Esther were introduced to us last week. Esther, her Hebrew name is Hadassah, which means myrtle tree. It's an image occasionally used by the prophets to represent Israel. Esther is her Persian name, and Esther uh, has to do with uh, the meaning of star. So Esther becomes for Israel a, a morning star, that there's a new day rising. Uh, people are rising from the ashes of exile, and how will we now live? Our reading of Esther is to understand that this book, this story, is Israel's story. And they're asking the question, how do we begin anew, restored in the land? In hearing Esther's story, we hear Israel's story of rebellion, of exile. We hear their story of salvation and restoration. Now today, we pick up a certain chapter in that story. That chapter where the evil serpent enters the garden, plotting to overthrow God's children. And how will God's children respond? How will God, God respond to this serpent in the garden? Well, when we'll enter Esther's life and story again this morning to find out. Will you join me first with a word of prayer? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you have given us your word, which is living and active. Would you open our eyes to see Christ more clearly? Soften our hearts and open our ears that we might be conformed to the image of your dear Son, transformed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. By brief recap, by way of recap here, uh, as, as, uh, Israel's morning star, who is Esther, she's just married the most powerful man in the Persian Empire, the Persian king Ahasuerus. She has gone literally from orphan rags to royal riches. God is not named throughout the book of Esther, nor does he speak directly in the book but his sovereign hand is moving all the pieces. At the end of chapter 2, we see that Esther's uncle and basically her surrogate father by the name of Mordecai. Well, Mordecai discovers a plot against the king's life. He gives his intel to Esther, and Esther uh, gives the word to her husband, the king, and the king's life is spared. The two traitors plotting against the king are hanged on gallows. Mordecai is elevated to high rank, and his deeds are recorded. God's people are a blessing to the nations, yet a serpent lurks in the garden. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Esther. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set, him, set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. But Mordecai, there's always that pause. But Mordecai didn't bow down. Our, 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 our story here takes place in a garden, in the garden of the palace at Susa. Officials and judges are, are guarding the, the gate, and a serpent 
has arisen in the garden. In fact, the serpent has been elevated to a high rank. Enter Haman the Agagite. I know, it sounds like I've got a stuttering problem. That's how you say it, I guess. Haman the Agagite, he's descended from a king by the name of Agag. He's a descendant of Israel's ancient enemies, the Amalekites, where centuries before Haman is on the scene and Mordecai is on the scene, we have King Saul back in Israel. And he was warring against the Amalekites. And after defeating them, he was supposed to kill. But he spared King Agag. So we have here a descendant of that king, king of the Amalekites, the ancient enemy of Israel. So hold that in thought there. Now, who's Mordecai? Well, we learn from chapter 2 that Mordecai is a descendant of King Saul. We've got an ancient battle between Israel and the Amalekites, King Agag, King Saul, and it seems to be playing out before our very eyes in Persian exile. The Persian king Ahasuerus raises up, elevates Haman very high, so high that he commands all who would see him come before him to bow before this elevated official. God has placed his king Ahasuerus on the throne and this king gives a law and a command that all are to bow down before Haman. Why then does Mordecai not bow down to Haman? Why does he not bow down? Is he taking Daniel's stand? Remember Daniel and company? They were to bow down before the idol and worship the idol. But the Bible, the law of God, doesn't say anything about not bowing down to authority figures. You see Abram doing that. Esther will do that. There's no law against bowing down to Haman by, according to God's law. It must not be it. Maybe there's personal dislike of Haman. Maybe there's some jealousy that, that Mordecai is not moving politically as fast as Haman was. We don't know what his motives are for sure. What we do know is that the text makes it very clear. The king commanded this, and Mordecai disobeyed the king. The king commanded it, and Mordecai transgresses the king's command. Does anybody else in the book of Esther transgress the king's command? Remember Queen Vashti? She transgressed the king's command, and she was met with exile and a replacement. Mordecai is playing with fire here. Remember, this is Israel's story. Always guilty of disobeying their king. Verse 5 of chapter 3, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. I mean, you talk about a temper. That got out of hand quickly, didn't it? God raises up enemies throughout Israel's history to humble his people, to call them back to him, Philistia, to Assyria, even Babylon. God raises them up to persecute Israel that they might be humbled and turn to their God, turn hearts and eyes back to God. But here, as he's raised up God's enemies, once again, God's enemies now go to far. God's instruments have limits. They are not to grasp after forbidden fruit, but Haman here seeks destruction, not only of, of Mordecai, but of all of God's people. He seeks 
total annihilation. So verse 7 says this, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots before Haman. Day after day, they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. They're casting lots to see which day they should destroy all the Jews. They're casting lots. January 1st, cast the lot. Nope, not that day. January 2nd, nope, not there either. 3rd, 4th, 5th, nope, not that day. We're going through the whole calendar until the middle of December. That's a lot of no's. Until finally the middle of December falls, the lot falls there. Proverbs 16 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Most of the year's lots were cast already before Israel's doom is faded. Now, if you've heard of the Feast of Purim, we may talk about that later on. This is the origination of that feast celebrated in the book of Esther. Now, we'll talk about that maybe some later on, but I just wanted to point that out at least. Haman, after these lots are cast, the date is set, calendars are marked, they've got reminders on all their apps. Haman approaches the king, and he accuses all of the Jewish people throughout all the 127 Persian promises, provinces of rebellion, of sedition. What Haman says, same thing that was accused, like Ezra and them were accused of, it says this, they follow different laws than ours. Well, is that true of Israel? Yeah, they've got their set of laws that they follow too. So that's, there's truth in what he says. They follow different laws, and they don't keep the law, the king's law. Well, all of them? I mean, that's not, that's not true. I mean, yeah, Mordecai's not bowing before, but they don't break all of the king's laws. In, a, in short, Haman says, there's rotten apples in your orchard. If we don't take care of them, they're going to destroy the whole orchard. Chop them down. And to sweeten the deal, Haman says, I'll even take 10,000 talents from my own treasury, and I'll help cover the costs of this destruction of this people. Verse 10, so the king sent, uh, took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as seems good to you. So the king can't have widespread disobedience. He's following the counsel of his advisor, Haman. Ahasuerus orders the destruction of the Jewish, Jewish exiles throughout the kingdom. And by the way, he'll even cover the costs. Verse 13, this is what happens. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th month of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. The edict goes throughout the land. God's chosen people are to be annihilated at the hands of of the Persian Empire. Judgment is rendered. The king and Haman, they sit down to feast at the end of chapter 3. But it says that the city of Susa is thrown into confusion. King and Haman are feasting, but the city is thrown into confusion. Why these people? What have they done? Why this edict? Why this order? This is not always the way it's been with the Jewish people in exile. In fact, the Bible shows that the nations take the Jews in. That the, the nations that have captured them and exiled them actually provide for them 
homes and treat them well, assimilate them into their society and culture. Think of Daniel and company rising to the top. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are high-ranking officials. Even Esther from rags to royal riches. All are raised to high ranks. Cyrus and Darius as they send the Jews back to their homeland. They provide all that they needed for their protection on the way there. They provide all of the supplies for them to build the, the house of God. But here, the serpent is hissing deceit into the ear of God's king, Ahasuerus. And the king listens, and he seeks to destroy God's people. The faithful are threatened now. Just to bring our attention back to last Sunday, we were reminded that this threat to life for bearing the name of our God is not something in the far past. But there are many, millions in fact, around the world who are suffering and threatened because they bear the name of Jesus. And we too may know something of that for being followers of Jesus in this life, in this society. We might know something of that kind of suffering for carrying the name of Christ but that's what it is to follow Jesus, isn't it? Doesn't Jesus say to deny ourselves and to take up our cross? Paul writes to Timothy, exhorting him to share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Elsewhere in Philippians, Paul says this, that I may know Christ in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Are we a people prepared to suffer for bearing the name of Jesus. That's what the book of Esther helps us just to kind of enter into that. Are we willing to suffer for bearing the name of our king and of our God? The book of Esther, if it portrays nothing else so clearly, it portrays at least that the life of following Jesus is, is going to be one of, of suffering at times. That there is a fellowship of sharing in Christ's suffering. That we are a community of faith persevering in Christ, which will mean there will be hardship to follow. And yet, in the midst of it, we are to trust that God will provide now and in the resurrection. And that's where we find Mordecai and Esther. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out, with a loud and bitter cry, went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. He's going to beseech the king, but he can't get past the king's gate. Why? Because like any holy shrine or temple, death is not allowed in. See, Mordecai, okay, remember Adam and Eve? They were exiled out of the garden outside the gates. They were not allowed to go in in their defilement. Anyone defiled or touched by death had no access to the temple. So no one in the state of death could access the king's paradise garden. He needs to go before the king to, to plead his cause, to beg his help, his salvation. But Mordecai is exiled from the garden paradise in his death-like state. So these are the actions. What we read of Mordecai, these are the actions of a man desperate for God's help, a man who puts himself in the posture of one who is dead or dying, who looks to God for resurrection life. When Jonah walked through Nineveh, what did the Ninevites do? 
They tear their clothes, saying, this is a me tearing my own body. They put ashes on their head. You're not going to put fire on your head. So you do that with ashes. You symbolize, I'm a living sacrifice. Do with me as you see fit. And so here we see Mordecai. And then it's all of the Israelites throughout the, the land begin this action of seeking God, of repenting in like manner, seeking his help. Perhaps Mordecai is repenting of his disobedience to the king's command. Perhaps he's seen that his actions, his rebellion, his sin is causing hardship to the entirety of God's people here. Maybe it's because he persuaded Esther to conceal her identity as a Jew in chapter 2. You wonder if maybe the king had known that she was also a Jew. This may not have passed. Perhaps this is just a desperate prayer enacted vehemently. Again, we're not given motives here, but these actions are consistent with the man who was confessing sin and turning in repentance. So the pattern is set. In exile, we are a repenting people. In the state of death, we look to God to raise us up to newness of life. Remember Mordecai's and the ancestor of King Saul. He was a good king for a long time, and then he started to fall, started to sin. And the only difference we see between King Saul and King David is what? King Saul never repents. Israel, generation after generation, is given grace to repent, and yet generation after generation refuses to repent and is therefore cast out. How about you? How about me, Mordecai, Esther, the exiles? Are we a people quicker and quicker to confess our sin and to repent and turn to God. Well, Esther sees what's happening here. Then in verse 5, Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. In verse 7, Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. The bride of the king sees the affliction of God's people and is moved to action. She sees Mordecai. She sees the fasting and the ashes on the head. What is she to do? In verse 8, here's her instructions. Mordecai gave a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their instruction that he might show it to Esther, explain to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. The bride is to beseech her king, her husband, her bridegroom. Again, this is Israel's story. So if we're reading um, Esther, the book of Esther through the lens and saying this is Israel's story, what we see is that the bride is to seek the king's face and the king's favor there's a bride of Yahweh, his chosen people, the apple of his eye, and they are to seek their bridegroom's face and his favor continually. So Mordecai exhorts Esther here, seek the favor of your husband, the king. Beseech the king on our behalf. We are unfit to come before the king, but you have a place as the apple of his eye. Esther sends her servant back to Mordecai with this reply in verse 11. All the king's servants, and this is, this is Esther, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, 
except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king for 30 days. The king dwells in the holiest of places, the holy of holies. And who can enter in without his invitation and welcome? Esther has been ghosted. She's in a wilderness for about 30 days here from the king's presence. And she knows the law. None can go into the king's presence without his invitation, lest his wrath fall heavy and swift. Esther's only hope, and she states it there, the only hope if she were to go into the king's presence that, that he would extend the golden scepter of mercy. Makes sense. She's maybe, we hear maybe a little hesitancy to barge into the holy of holies here. So Mordecai replies once again in verse 13, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise up for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Those words, for such a time as this. There's no like magic eight ball in life and there's no magic talisman to tell us in every decision this is what we need to and ought to be doing here. God grants his people to eat from the tree of life and also from the tree of wisdom, the knowledge of good and evil. He gives us wisdom. Mordecai is seeking to read his story, Esther's story, as God is unfolding the history of their story. He's seeking to find their place in it. And he exhorts Israel's morning star Esther here, saying now is the time to act. The threat is real. Following God does not eliminate hardship and suffering, no matter how high you are elevated in society. What's interesting is what does Mordecai command Esther to do here? To speak, to reveal who she is. That's the very thing he told her not to do. But he's saying, I wonder if this is not, okay, I wonder if this, this command for him to say, reveal who you are, I wonder if that's not a not-so-subtle exhortation for Israel to always know who they are and always to be clear, we are followers of God. We are followers of Jesus Christ. I wonder if it's a, an exhortation for them as they go back into the land to cease concealing their identity, to stop hiding behind idolatry or idols, to stop hiding behind their self-righteousness and their fear. Mordecai recognizes that salvation will come for God's people, even if it's in unexpected ways. Even if we fail, God will still save his people. It's vital for their own survival, but more than for life of Israel, God promised Abram way back in the day that salvation for the world is through the offspring of Abraham as they live according to God's commands. They are to be a light to the nations. They are to be a royal priesthood, leading people to God. Perhaps this is why you are now queen, is what he's telling Esther. Live as the bride of the true king, the eternal bridegroom. It's, isn't that the message that Israel was given time and again, time and again? The message that scripture gives us that we as the church are the bride of Christ and we are to love and serve God as, as our beloved and we are his beloved as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? What does it look like to live as God's bride? Verse 15, Esther 
gives this reply to Mordecai in 16. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days and nights, night and day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. The bride of our Savior is to lead people into holy communion with our beloved. Now, we're not surprised to see a fast of three days. There's something about three days here that reminds us, doesn't it, of resurrection, of course. There's a people willingly giving themselves up they enter into the tomb of that cold, empty, unrelenting belly of the fish. Oh, we can't manipulate God in action. This is not about showing how righteous we are so that God will turn and act on our behalf. But this, is, this fast is their form of, of prayer, a willing obedience to enter death that God might raise them up. And who can do that? Who can enter in when there is no guarantee that there is life on the other side? If I perish, I perish. I mean, the tomb never opens up. The king never allows access. Wrath and death await Queen Esther and her people. But someone must go. And God's people watched and waited, watched and waited. Generation after generation as priests, kings were raised up. Great men and women were raised up to save God's people, and yet every one of them failed. Every one of them died. But here we have Esther's, if I perish, I perish. We have one who is willing to enter in, fully expecting the wages of sin as death. She gives herself a substitute that others might live. Now, we might know the ending of this book. At least we can guess it from this point on. But again, I want to point out to our readers, this is Israel's story. This is our story. As the bride of Christ, we are to live transparently. That is, to, to live in such a way that it is known that we are followers of Jesus Christ. Our endeavor is to love him, honor, cherish, follow him. To live is Christ. To die is gain. A people who take up our cross, denying ourselves, we follow him. Acknowledging that we are bought with the price, that we belong to him. That we are also a royal priesthood. Entering into God's presence, knowing our only hope in his holy presence is his gracious extension of the golden scepter of mercy. We beseech him for our lives and the lives of his people and yes, for the life of the world. We are to give ourselves as Christ has given himself. A living sacrifice for the glory of the king, for the good of his people. If I perish, and I perish. How are we able to do this, to live this way with any semblance of hope? Because we have one who did enter the king's presence, knowing that it was the only, the only way of salvation. And as he entered in, no golden scepter of mercy was extended to him, but only wrath, the wrath that we deserved. As we refused to obey our king, to bow down before him in all things, Jesus entered in, not saying, if I perish, because he drank the cup of God's wrath willingly. He gave himself on the cross that we might receive the scepter of mercy. That is our bridegroom and that is our king. 
And how can we keep silent about who we are, about whose we are? How can we not enter into his presence to dwell with him? How can we not revel in being called together into his presence to feast with him now as a foretaste of the feast to come? Esther teaches us to live, to live simply as a community of faith, trusting ever in God's mercy and in his salvation through Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, may we ever grow as his people, giving our lives for the glory of God, the good of his people, and for the life of the world. Let us pray. We are grateful, Father, for this word, and we pray that you would strengthen us, grant us courage to live in such a way that others might see our lives and give glory to you. No matter the cost, O oh Lord, we belong to you. We are yours. We give you praise, thanks, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.